All right. Are we doing okay so far? Yes. You able to follow along? Yes. Good, good. Okay, we're dealing with uh, the internal evidence of Daniel 8 through 12. Uh, we notice that in Daniel chapter 8, oh, by the way, somebody asked about the name of the, um, of the person who wrote that book, 508, 538, um, 1798, and 1843. Uh, the name is Heidi Jenks. And by the way, Heidi Jenks is a man, not a woman. So, don't ask me why his name is Heidi. Huh? Uh, I thought that this was the correct spelling. How, how is it spelled? Yeah, maybe, maybe this is just a transliteration or something. I think on the cover of the book, I think this is the name that's there. Uh, but... Um, you know, it's an, it's an excellent resource. And by the way, he's amplified it now into three volumes. And basically, the whole idea is to show that the traditional view of the Adventist church, uh, that the 1260 days are 538 to 1798, the 1290 are 508 to 1798, and the uh, 1335 are 508 to 1843. He shows through extensive documentation that that traditional view is the correct view. And I agree with him. Because there are many people who are trying to project these time periods to the future. Uh, you know, they're establishing time for the National Sunday Law and the Universal Sunday Law, the beginning of the time of trouble, and you know, people establishing dates right and left. Yes? I, I thought it was Heidi Jenks. Anyway, the name of the book is 508, 538, 1798, and 1843. I thought that on the cover of the book, this is the, um, this is the name. But... If I'm mistaken, at least you have the title of the book, just go to Google. You should be able to find it. I know it's available in the, in the, at the ABC, uh, Central California, and I think it's probably available also at our booth. It's a, it's a small book, probably about 100 uh, plus pages, and um, it's very, very reasonably priced. It's a hardback book. Really, really good. Okay, uh, let's go back here then to Daniel 8. Daniel chapter 8 gives you, uh, it speaks about the 2300 day period. Does Daniel 8 give you a beginning point for the 2300 days? It doesn't give you a beginning point. Now, let's go to the fourth, let's go to our third point here. Um, there is only one symbol, we covered this in Daniel 8 for both pagan and papal Rome, a little horn. The horn first spreads out horizontally, then vertically to heaven. In other words, it first extends politically and then religiously. It is rather clear that the introduction of another beast into Daniel 8 to represent pagan Rome would have spoiled the symmetry of the chapter, which emphasizes the two beasts of the sanctuary service. And then the fourth difference between Daniel 2 and 7 and Daniel 8 is that in Daniel 8 there is no reference to the establishment of Christ's everlasting kingdom. In Daniel 2, it says that the stone smites the image and breaks it into smithereens and then the stone becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. That's the kingdom. 
In Daniel chapter 7, it says that the time came when the saints inherited the kingdom after the judgment. But in Daniel 8, you have no reference to the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom. The, the vision stops uh, all of a sudden. And of course, uh, we know the reason why. This is due to the fact that Daniel got sick before Gabriel was able to explain the entire vision. This is the reason why Gabriel came back in Daniel 9 through 12 to explain the things that had remained unexplained in chapter 8. Uh, so is that point clear? Yes? No or maybe? <laughs> Good. All right, now, so what is the purpose of Daniel chapter 8? The purpose of Daniel 8 is to uh, give you the framework for the 2300 days. It says, unto 2300 days and the sanctuary shall be cleansed, which is the judgment. Uh, but Daniel chapter 8 doesn't give you a starting point for the 2300 days. So the question is, when do the 2300 days start? Well, where would you expect to find the answer? How about the very next chapter? <laughs> in Daniel chapter 9. What do you have in Daniel chapter 9? Well, it starts out with a prayer, a long prayer. Where Daniel is, is pouring out his heart to the Lord. He said, Lord, we've sinned. We've blown it. We don't deserve any mercy. We deserve to be destroyed. But then Daniel says, you know, remember, be merciful to us. And he's actually, it's a, it's a um, prayer of repentance. Corporate repentance, if you, pre if you please. And uh, so at the end of his prayer, the same angel that had come to him in Daniel chapter 8 now comes back. And he says, I've come back to give you understanding. Understanding of what? He says, understand the vision. Which vision? There was no vision in Daniel 9 to this point. Daniel 8 was the vision, right? And so he says, I've come back to help you understand the vision. And then he gives the prophecy of what? The 70 weeks. Does the prophecy of the 70 weeks provide a starting point for the 2300 days? Yes. So does Daniel 9 have uh, a very close connection with the prophecy of the 2300 days? Yes. Most certainly. The whole purpose of giving the prophecy of the 70 weeks, maybe not the whole purpose, but one of the great purposes of giving the prophecy of the 70 weeks was to provide a starting point for the 2300 days from the going forth of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem. And by the way, if you want a, study on Daniel, a detailed study on Daniel 9, uh, you can go to our websites, uh, secretsunsealed.org, and uh, you know when you, you go uh, click on study materials, and there's a whole study of about uh, 30 plus pages going into all the little details of Daniel chapter nine. Uh, you know we we just assume many times that restore and build Jerusalem means the same thing to restore and to build. It doesn't mean the same thing. They they are two different words that uh, need to be understood within their context. But anyway, the purpose of Daniel 9 is to give the prophecy of the 70 weeks in order to give us a starting point for the 2300 day prophecy. In other words, the central theme of Daniel 8 is the 2300 days. The central theme of Daniel 9 is the 2300 days, the starting point. And then in Daniel chapter 10, you have a very interesting uh, battle going on. Let me ask you, for the prophecy of the 2300 days to be fulfilled, prophecy of the 70 weeks also to be fulfilled, 
Did certain decrees need to be given in order for these prophecies to begin to be fulfilled? Uh, did a decree have to be given for God's people to go back to their land? Uh, did a decree have to be given for them to rebuild their temple? Did a decree have to be given uh, for them to be able to build and to restore Jerusalem, to establish the Hebrew theocracy? Absolutely. Now what would happen if these decrees were not given? As, as God said that they were going to be given. What would happen? The beginning of the 2300 day prophecy would be totally frustrated. It would remain unfulfilled. Do you think the devil knew that these decrees were going to be given? You better believe he did. Do you think that the devil did everything in his power to keep these uh, decrees from being given? Why would he do that? Because he did not want the 2300 day prophecy to begin to fulfill on time. In fact, let's read what I have here. Uh, let's just go through this. Daniel 9, where it says Daniel 9. Daniel 8 mentions the 2300 day prophecy, but does not provide a starting point. In chapter 9, the starting point for the 2300 days is given. The 70 weeks constitute the first 490 of the 2300 day prophecy. And those years begin during the kingdom of what? Persia. This is the real reason why the kingdom of Babylon is not mentioned in Daniel chapter 8. When do the 23, under which kingdom do the 2300 days begin? Persia. Do you understand now why Babylon wasn't included? If they included Babylon in the vision, it would have given the impression that the 2300 days were supposed to be bring, begin during the period of Babylon. Are you with me? So, so God was wise in saying, no, no let's, start, let's start with Persia. And by the way, in Daniel 11, you also uh, begin with Persia. Okay, now Daniel 10. In order for the prophecy of the 2300 days to be fulfilled, especially the 70 weeks, it was necessary for the kings of Persia to give certain decrees for Israel to go back to their land and rebuild their temples, city walls, and to restore a functioning Hebrew theocracy. Satan, the prince of Persia, who's mentioned in chapter 10, knew this, and therefore he worked on the minds of the Persian kings to try and prevent them from allowing Israel to return to their land. He's working on the minds of the kings of Persia, it says. If Israel did not return, if the temple, the city, and the walls were not rebuilt, if the theocracy was not reestablished, the prophecy of the 2300 days could not begin to be fulfilled and God's plan would be frustrated. But, at, but in the end, Michael came to help Gabriel and the prophecy of the 2300 days began right on schedule. So does Daniel 10 have anything to do with the 2300 days? Yes. Does Daniel 9 have anything to do with the 2300 days? Does Daniel 8 have anything to do with the 2300 days? Absolutely. What is the central theme of these chapters? The 2300 day prophecy. Now what about Daniel 11? This is a very interesting, Daniel 11 is a very, very interesting chapter. I'm going to go through this uh, line by line because I wrote it exactly the way I want it to come out. <laughs> Now that which was begun and not finished in Daniel 8 will be completed in chapter 11. Let me ask you, Daniel 8, to what point did Daniel 8 take you in history? 
the cleansing of the sanctuary. It only takes you to what date? 1844. But your question is, what about beyond that? Daniel 8 doesn't tell you anything beyond that. It takes you to 1844, Daniel got sick. So would you expect God to come back and say to Daniel, hey, now I'm going to give you the complete picture? Of course. So Daniel 11, God is going to start where he started in Daniel 8 with Persia. And he's going to go over the history with additional details. But he's not, listen carefully, he's not going to take Daniel only to 1844. He's going to take him to the close of probation and the setting up of Christ's everlasting kingdom. He's going to, Daniel 11 presents the whole picture that was left incomplete in Daniel chapter 8. Well, let's continue here. As in Daniel 8, the vision of Daniel 11 begins during the kingdom of Persia, not Babylon. And now it doesn't even say Medo-Persia, it says Persia. It continues with Greece, its first king, and the four divisions. You can find that in Daniel 11 verse 3. It actually speaks about, you know, uh, a king, a fierce countenance, you know, and it speaks about four divisions that came out of his kingdom. Then it continues with pagan and papal Rome in both its stages, the 1260 years and in the end time. Now I wish we had time to talk, talk about that, but we don't have time to deal with the two Romes. But the two Romes are there in Daniel chapter 11. Very clear, there's a transition point in verse 22. Primarily, verse 22 provides a transition between pagan Rome and papal Rome. But instead of taking us merely from the time of the kingdom of Persia to the end of the 2300 days in 1844, when the judgment begins, Daniel 11 takes us all the way from Persian to the end of that judgment and the close of probation. Are you following me? So interestingly enough, Daniel 8.14 tells you when the judgment begins, and Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, doesn't give you a date, but it speaks about the ending of that judgment when Michael stands up. So basically, Daniel 11 has all of the history from the kingdom of Persia all the way down to the time when Michael stands up. And by the way, the also the establishment of Christ's everlasting kingdom, because it, it says that God's people will shine as stars forever and ever. Uh, are you clear on this point? Okay, very good. So let me ask you, what is the central theme of Daniel chapter uh, 8 through 12? What is the point that God is, central point that God is trying to get across? The 2300 days, the judgment, the idea of the judgment. So is this kind of like a book within a book? Yes, because Daniel 8 tells you when, it gives you the time period, 2300 days. Daniel 9 gives you the starting point. Daniel 10 speaks about the battle so that the decrees can be given. Daniel 11, God says, okay, now I'm going to take you over the same road again. We're going to begin where we started in Daniel 8 with Persia, but now we're going to take you beyond 1844 when the judgment began, and we're going to go all the way till Michael stands up and the judgment comes to an end. And when the kingdom is established. And then at the conclusion of uh, verse 3 where it speaks about the everlasting kingdom, immediately Daniel is told what? To seal the book, to close the book. He says, close the book now. Until when? Until the time of the end. So what is this little book? 
that is supposed to be sealed until the time of the end. It's all of these aspects that have to do with what? With the beginning of the judgment in 1844. Now reason number four why this little book is a portion of Daniel is found uh, in Revelation chapter 10. And let's go through this material here um, quickly. The opening of the little book in Revelation 10 is a clear reference to the unsealing and opening of the book that was sealed in Daniel 12 verse 4. Because there's only one book in the Bible that was sealed to be opened at the time of the end. So there you know that there's a connection between the book that was sealed in Daniel and the book that is open in Revelation 10. There's no other book in the Bible that was sealed to be opened later. This is the only one. Now, notably, the little book of Revelation 10 is opened in the period of the sixth trumpet. And that's another big uh, point of contention in the Adventist church right now, the trumpets. You know, there are those individuals who believe that the trumpets are all future. Some Adventists believe that they're, that they're going to be blown after the close of probation. Others believe that they're, going, they're still future, but they're going to be blown before probation closes. But they're still future from our time. And then there are those who have the traditional view that uh, the trumpets represent, begin with the uh, uh, barbarian invasions of the Roman Empire. And uh, they carry us all the way through the establishment of Christ's kingdom under the seventh trumpet. Now, I'd like to say that I'm a, I'm a historicist when it comes to the trumpets. I believe that uh, the churches cover church history from the time of the apostles till the end of time. I believe that the seals are parallel, but they present uh, a different perspective of the same time period from apostolic times till the end of time. And I believe that the trumpets begin also, and this is, this is the problem with the ultra-traditional view, uh, you know, why do we begin the trumpets in the fourth century and not in apostolic times? Are you with me? There's a problem there for historicists. Because if we, if we say that, you know, historicism simply teaches that prophecy begins to fulfill in the days when the prophet lived. In Daniel 2, which is the first kingdom? Babylon. That's the kingdom that Daniel is living in. How about Daniel 7? Same. How about the churches? John. How about the seals? The, the, the church going out conquering and to conquer. But of course the trumpets, they begin in the 4th century. You immediately begin to discern a problem. Now I'll tell you what my view of the trumpets is <laughs> in a nutshell. If you're interested, if you're really a student of prophecy and you really want to delve into this deeply, uh, you give me your email address, I'll send you uh, the 140 pages that I wrote on the trumpets. We just finished last Wednesday in our prayer meeting. It took us over 30 sessions to study the trumpets, about an hour and 15 minutes each session. We studied it with a fine-tooth comb, applying the Bible principles that we apply to the churches and the seals. See, some people take the trumpets as literal. The mountain that fell into the ocean, they say, that's a giant, that's a gigantic asteroid. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Adventists are saying that. 
And they say that, the, you know, where, where it speaks about the stars, a third of the stars falling, they say those are meteorites. And, uh, you know, they, where it speaks about the demons coming out of the abyss, they're talking about, you know, demons that God have, has tied down in the underworld, and he's going to release these demons, and, you know, they're going to come up from the underworld. I mean, and, and the poisoning of the waters, they say someplace on planet Earth, a third of the waters are going to be poisoned, and a third of humanity is going to perish. In other words, they're interpreting the trumpets literally, and my question is, why do you interpret the trumpets literally and everything else symbolically? See, there's all sorts of problems with these views of the trumpets. Now, I'll tell you what dates I believe the trumpets to be, and don't ask me to explain it. <laughs> I'll be glad to send you the material. I believe the first trumpet is describing the destruction of Jerusalem. Amen. I'm firmly convinced of that. The symbols interpreted uh, in the light of all of Scripture indicate that it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's a punishment upon uh, Jerusalem for crucifying the Messiah. It's taking place in apostolic times because the destruction of Jerusalem comes as a result of the rejection of the message of the apostles. The second trumpet I believe to be the fall of the Roman Empire. I believe that it's talking about the barbarian invasions. The fall of the Roman Empire. I believe the third trumpet is the fall of the Christian church in the year 538, the Roman Catholic Papacy. I believe that the fourth trumpet is describing the whole period of the Dark Ages of, of, from 538 to 1798. And the reason why I believe that is because it speaks about the sun being darkened, it speaks of a, th a third of the sun, which in scripture means partially, it's not a total judgment like, like the plagues, it's a partial judgment. A third of the sun was darkened, a third of the moon was darkened, and a third of the stars fell from heaven. Now, the wisest way of interpreting this would be to find out what the Bible means when it's talking about the sun. sun, moon, and stars, church. Are we dealing with symbols here? Yeah. Well, must be. Why do you say trumpets, no symbols? Everything else, symbols. No, that's not the way to interpret scripture. The sun represents Jesus Christ. Very clearly, it represents Christ, the sun. The sun of righteousness. So in some way, during this period, the sun was going to be eclipsed. What does the moon represent? The moon is the lesser light. Do you know what the lesser light is? This book is the lesser light. I know that that's different than what we've usually thought. We usually say, you know, the Bible is the greater light and Ellen White is the lesser light. And especially the enemies of Ellen White love to say that because they consider lesser inferior. See? But we've got it wrong. Because this is not the greater light. This gives testimony to the greater light. Amen. Jesus cannot be contained in a book. Amen. He is the greater light. Amen. And the scriptures give witness to Jesus. In other words, the scriptures are the lesser light that lead to the greater light. And by the way, Ellen White is also a lesser light. Last year at Army, I, I, I did a parallel between John the Baptist and Ellen White. Remember that? Yeah. You know? Ellen White and the Bible are both lesser lights. You say, well, why two lesser lights? Well, let me ask you. Did the Jews of Christ they have scripture? Yeah. yeah. Did they also get John the Baptist? Yeah. 
So why get John the Baptist if they had scripture? The reason is very simple. They weren't studying scripture and they weren't obeying scripture, so God says, I'm going to shine on the pages of scripture to see if I can help them along a little bit. So the same is true with the Christian world. Christian world says, we got the Bible, the Bible, and nobody obeys the Bible. So, so God says, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a flashlight. And the flashlight shines on, uh, uh, shines on scripture and say, wow, scripture is marvelous. And both lead us to the greater light, Jesus Christ. Now how did I get on this side road? The fourth trumpet, and of course, what do stars represent in Scripture? See, see, what is the darkening, the partial darkening of the moon is explained in Revelation 11. The two witnesses prophesy in sackcloth. And sackcloth in Scripture is identified with darkness. So what happens? The work of Christ is eclipsed. The testimony of the lesser light, Scripture, is eclipsed. And a third of the stars fall. What do stars represent? They represent angels, but they also represent what? God's people. What did the little horn do with God's people during the dark ages? They cast them down and they mowed them down, according to Daniel chapter 8. And I go into detail and uh, connect Daniel 8 with the fourth trumpet. It's a, there's an amazing connection between Daniel and Revelation. And then the fifth trumpet, I believe, to be the French Revolution. Very clearly the French Revolution. The deadly wound that is given to the papacy, culminating in 1798. The sixth trumpet has to do with events surrounding the year 1844. And we're going to take a look at that here because that's our, our special focus of study. Um, it has to do with events actually happening between 1798 and the close of probation, the sixth trumpet. And of course the seventh trumpet is the moment when Jesus Christ, when probation closes and Jesus Christ takes over his kingdom. That's what it clearly says in Revelation chapter 11 and verses 15 through 17 it says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So, so basically I'm a historicist when it comes to the trumpets because I believe that they begin in the time of the apostles and we need to see the flow of church history in the trumpets. I just uh, disagree a little bit with the specific dates uh, that we've traditionally given. I mean uh, why would God need four trumpets to talk about the barbarian invasions? I mean, that was an important event. And by the way, let me ask you this. Um, how many times does Ellen White attribute any role to the Muslims in end time events? No, I'm talking in the future. How many times does Ellen White say that, you know, Islam is going to be a power that will be threatening to God's people in great controversy. She doesn't. Who are the powers that are going to be particular enemies of God's people? The papacy, apostate Protestantism, spiritualism, and the kings of the earth that will be used by Protestantism and by Catholicism. Right? You read the last half of Great Controversy? She attributes no role whatsoever to, to, to the Muslims, to Islam, in the fulfillment of prophecy. You know, I, I believe that what the devil has done in causing this uh, focus on Islam is that the devil wants Christians to look to the Middle East for the fulfillment of prophecy. 
It's a distraction. It's a distraction even from many Seventh-day Adventists. So that as people are looking to the east, they're looking, oh, the Muslims and the Russians and, and, and the Arabs are going to attack the Jews. And, uh, you know, they're, they're looking over to the Middle East. And meanwhile, in Rome and in the United States, the, the Antichrist and his helper grow and people can't see it because they're looking in the wrong place. It's a smokescreen. It's a distraction. The, the close of probation when Christ takes over his kingdom. And by the way... Um, the taking over of the kingdom by Jesus Christ is a two-stage event. And the Christian world only understands one. The Christian world only understands that when Jesus comes, he's going to take over the kingdom. But really, the time when Jesus' uh, kingdom is made up is when probation closes. Isn't his kingdom made up when probation closes? Has, have the righteous been separated from the wicked? Before probation closes? Absolutely. In fact, Ellen White says that the harvest is the end of probationary time. In Christ's Object Lessons, the harvest is the end of probationary time. And so the harvest actually takes place before the second coming of Christ. The righteous are, the righteous are tied in bundles to then be gathered into God's barn. And the wicked are bound together to be cast into the wine press. But the binding of the righteous and the wicked, and they're actually casting or storing in the barn, represents the second coming of Christ. And so, uh, you know, it's illustrated in the story that I talked about last, at last army, the, uh, the story of the flood. Let me ask you, when, when were the righteous and the wicked um, people separated so that the righteous could not become wicked and the wicked could not become righteous. Was it when it started to rain or when the door closed? When the door closed. Was Christ's kingdom made up, so to speak, when the door closed? Absolutely. Is that going to happen in relation to the second coming? Absolutely. We're told very clearly that uh, as it was in the days of Noah, so else also shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. We just assume that the coming of the Son of Man refers just to the second coming of Christ. But then if you continue reading, it explains that the coming refers to two things. The coming of Jesus to his Father to receive the kingdom, and then is actually coming to earth to destroy the wicked and to save his people. Because it says there, For as it was in the days of Noah, the people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. The word until is used twice. What didn't they know? What didn't the wicked know between when the door closed and when it started to rain? They didn't know that probation had closed and that they were lost. So folks, we don't need to prepare for the second coming. We need to prepare for the close of probation. Yes. And we usually speak, if we're not prepared for the close of probation, we're not going to be prepared for the second coming. And after probation closes, there's no more chance. And so we need to make sure that our lives are right with the Lord. Okay, so going back to reason number four, the opening of the little book in Revelation 10 is a clear reference to the unsealing and opening of the book that was sealed in Daniel 12, verse 4, because there's only one book in the Bible that was sealed to be opened at the time of the end. Notably, the little book of Revelation 10 is opened in the period of the sixth trumpet, at the very end of history, immediately before Jesus takes over the kingdom at the time of the seventh trumpet. Isn't that interesting? So, so is the sixth trump, does the sixth trumpet take place in the time of the end? Sure. 
Is the little book opened in the context of the sixth trumpet? Sure, so it must, the opening of the little book must be in the time of the end. Now we're going to find in our next study that no chapter in the Bible, that I've been able to find anyway, explains in a clearer way the origin, message, mission, and destiny of God's end time remnant people. It's amazing. The sequence of events in Revelation 10 is simply amazing. It fits what happened between 1798 and 1844 perfectly without missing a beat. Now, it is no coincidence that the central message of the Millerites who preached at the beginning of the time of the end was drawn from Daniel 8:14 and Revelation 14:6 and 7. Why would they be preaching that? Let me ask you, are there lots of things that, that, that could be preached? Yeah. Oh, sure. Why did the Millerites preach from Daniel 8:14 and Revelation 14:6 and 7? Because they were living in the time of the end. And the little book was being what? Unsealed. So very clearly, history proves, beyond any doubt, that they were preaching exactly what had been predicted by Daniel when the book was sealed. Now, let's continue here. The eating of the little book in Revelation 10 clearly describes the judgment, our preaching of the Millerite movement. How do we know that? Well, we already studied that the little book, the central theme of the little book is what? The judgment, right? So the central theme of the little book is the judgment. So when the Millerites eat this book that speaks about the judgment, what is this book like in the mouth? It's sweet in the mouth. And we're going to talk all about all of this. Sweet in the mouth, which means that the message of the judgment was what? Oh, it was beautiful. They loved the judgment hour message. Of course, they thought that Jesus was going to come, right? But then it became what? The judgment hour message became very bitter in their stomachs. So would you expect the Millerites to be preaching a message about the judgment? If they're eating this little book? Of course. Did they preach a message about the judgment? Yes. Because they're fulfilling this prophecy. And so it says, the eating of the little book in Revelation 10 clearly describes the judgment hour message of the Millerite movement and its subsequent disappointment. And now here comes something very interesting. After the disappointment, John was told to prophesy again. Again from where? Where did the first, prophet, where did the first prophecy come from? <laughs> from the little book. Right? So if you must prophesy, can you do something again unless you've done it before? No. See, they, they gobbled up the book, it was sweet in the mouth, it was bitter in the stomach, it was a message of judgment. This all happened in, around the year 1844. And then afterwards, John is told, and of course John represents God's people because John wasn't alive during the period of the sixth trumpet. <laughs> He's told to what? Prophesy again. From where? From the little book. Is there going to be another message of judgment after the disappointment in 1844? Absolutely. But what is it that he's supposed to preach about concerning the book? 
Listen, he's told to prophesy again, and then he is commanded to measure the temple. What is the measuring of the temple? The measuring of the temple is the measuring of God's people in the judgment. So what message is going to come from the little book after the disappointment? It's going to be a message of judgment that the measuring of the temple has begun. Is this exactly what happened around 1844? It is amazing. And as we study this, you know, this is just the introduction, but as we study it, uh, you know, there's no doubt whatsoever that we're in the right church. Amen. <laughs> and I don't say that arrogantly. You know, we're better than everybody else. No, it's the truth. It's the truth. It's a privilege to belong to the remnant. But it's also a great responsibility because we have a message that we need to proclaim to the world. Okay, now notice this last statement from Ellen White on the little book. Uh, she says, It was the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? Jesus. Jesus who unsealed the book and gave it to John and gave to John the revelation of what should be in these last days. So who was it that, that took the seal off of the book and opened it? Jesus himself. Then she says, Daniel stood in his lot to bear his testimony, which was sealed until the time of the end. Now notice this when the first angel's message should be proclaimed to our world. When is it that the book was, was unsealed? When what? She says, when the first angel's message should be proclaimed to our world. Now let me ask you, what is the main content of the first angel's message? Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. See how it all fits together? She continues saying, these matters are of infinite importance in these last days. But while many shall be purified and made white and tried, the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. The book of Daniel is unsealed in the revelation to John and carries us forward to the last scenes of this earth's history. Amen. So are you seeing the importance of this little book? It's a vitally important book. Uh, did you understand how all of the chapters of Daniel fit together? Okay, let's review. My wife tells me that I repeat too much. And I always tell her, how do parrots learn how to talk? <laughs> Through repetition, right? Okay, what, what is the central theme of Daniel 8? 2300 days. Any beginning point? No. Where do we find the beginning point? Daniel 9. Daniel 9. But in order for that beginning point to come right on time, what needed to happen? Decrees. Decrees. So what's happening in Daniel 11? Daniel 10. Oh, there's a battle there between, uh, on the kings of Persia, it says, between uh, Gabriel and the prince of Persia, the ruler of Persia. And they're fighting for the minds of the kings. And the devil is saying, don't give the decrees. And God is saying, give them. Who prevails? God does. 536, the decree is given for God's people to go back to their land. 
A little bit later on in 520, another decree is given to rebuild the temple. And of course, in 457, you have the decree to build and to restore Jerusalem exactly on time as God said. And the 2300 days begin on time. And then what happens in Daniel 11? God says to Daniel, no, let me go back to the beginning, Daniel. You know, I, I started and you got sick. I wasn't able to finish. I only got to 1844. So he says, but now I'm going to take you all the way back to Persia again. And I'm going to add some details. And so he goes through the whole history. But he says, I'm not going to only take you to 1844 when the judgment begins. I'm going to take you beyond that to the time of the king of the north when he's going to come against God's people. And to the loud cry when tidings from the north and the east is going to trouble the king of the north. He go out to destroy. He's going to place the tents of his palace in a strategic place to destroy God's people all over the world. And I'm going to tell you about Michael standing up to defend his people. And I'm going to tell you about a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And I'm also going to tell you about at that time God's people will be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book and they will shine like stars forever and ever. In other words, he leads you all the way to the end. The central theme of Daniel 8 through 12 is the judgment hour message, and it has to do with 1844. Amen. So was Ellen White right when she spoke about that part of the book of Daniel being sealed until the time of the end? Yes, you don't have to lean on Ellen White. Amen. It's nice to have Ellen White. See, because this is one case where I read... Uh, I read these statements in the writings of Ellen White where she says that portion of the prophecy. And I said, now, wait a minute. That portion of the prophecy? Which portion is that? So what do you suppose I did? I went to the Bible. I said, well, let me check this out. Let me study it. So I studied the internal content of, of Daniel 8 through 12. And I discovered that exactly what she says is true. When you examine the passage uh, within itself. Uh, what Ellen White had to say is corroborated absolutely and truly. We have not believed cunningly devised fables. Amen. In other words, we're exactly where we should be. Okay, now uh, we're going to take a few questions. I don't want to get into anything new. Tomorrow afternoon, we have two sessions together, and we're going to get into a real intense study of Revelation 10. What I'd like you to do in preparation for that is to read the material in your syllabus. And put any questions that you might have in the margins, or if you want to add any, any new light that I don't know, I'd like to learn from you too. I've learned a lot from a lot of people, let me say. Uh, you know, that we're always learning from, not only from the Bible, but we're learning from each other. People give me wonderful ideas. So study that, and tomorrow we'll begin Revelation 10, and on Sunday morning, Lord willing, we'll, we'll be able to finish. Uh, before we take a few questions... Uh, I just want to announce that uh, our Secrets Unsealed booth is here. We've got a lot of real good material there. Uh, one particular book, probably most of you are acquainted with our materials, uh, Worship at Satan's Throne uh, is a very important book. It deals with the theological issues uh, behind the worship crisis that we have in the Adventist Church today, styles of worship. Uh, but it goes beyond, you know, the periphery like, uh, mimes or no mimes, dancing or no dancing. Those are only the symptoms. In other words, the book goes to the disease. Something happened in 1844 with the religious world. Babylon fell. Protestantism fell forever in 1844. 
And Ellen White says that, uh, you know, they kept on worshiping before the throne, oblivious that Jesus had gone into the most holy place. And that's where we really need to understand the worship crisis that we have in the Adventist church today. It's, it's an amazing story. Some people are scared by the cover of the book because they have these two eyes, penetrating eyes. They say, I'd never buy the book just because of the cover. Well, tear off the cover. <laughs> but read the book. It's a good book. Um, pardon me? That's, you never judge a book by its cover. Thank you. Good point. Uh, then I have a book called uh, Prophecies, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a study of the prophecy of Revelation 13. There's a lot more than what we've seen in that beast that has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a dragon. Um, and then there's a book called Hidden Sabbath Truths. Some amazing things about the Sabbath that perhaps we haven't seen before. Uh, and also two new books that were published by Amazing Facts. One is Futurism's Incredible Journey. It follows the whole historical sequence of how Protestantism changed from historicism to futurism and to preterism. And then there's a small book uh, that was published by Amazing Facts. The name of it is Taken or Left. And usually we assume that the one who is taken is taken with Jesus at the second coming and the one that is left is left on earth. Uh, but really, when you examine Scripture very carefully, you discover that the one that is left uh, are the righteous and the ones who are taken are the wicked. You have to understand the meaning of left and taken within its meaning in Scripture, not its meaning in the 21st century. You know, somebody once said to me, uh, uh, what part of taken don't you understand? And what part of left don't you understand? I said, well, uh, I understand these words in the context of the way, the way that they're used in Scripture. In Scripture, the word left is a remnant word. And it refers to people who are left after a great disaster or calamity or a great destruction. And the word taken in the Bible refers to being overtaken or to being destroyed. And so the problem is that we've, we've injected 21st century terminology into the meanings of Scripture instead of taking Scripture uh, and its meaning within itself. Uh, so we have those five books, and we've got a lot of other material. I have a brand new series that's being broadcast on 3ABN uh, on the Three Angels' Message. It's 25 one-hour sermons studying the Three Angels' Message phrase by phrase. What does it mean to fear God? That's one sermon. What does it mean to give glory to Him? There's two on the hour of God's judgment. There's, there, there's one on what it means to worship the Creator. What is the wine of Babylon? Uh, what is the fornication of Babylon? What is Babylon? Uh, you know, what is the beast? What is the mark of the beast? What is the image to the beast? There's one lecture on each one of those uh, uh, phrases in the Three Angels' Message. Uh, that's available. There's many other things available there at our booth. Uh, come by and check us out. We're also doing a drawing uh, of a Genesis code. That's the longest project we've done, 52 one-hour sermons uh, on all of the Adventist message from the book of Genesis. And uh, so if you fill out a card, you put, we'll put you on our mailing list. And, uh, you know, you can uh, be in the drawing for uh, that series, Cracking the Genesis Code. Okay, any questions? Uh, we'll take a few questions now. Back there, please speak up loudly. That's absolutely what I'm saying. The, the 1260, 1290, and 1335 days are past. They were fulfilled in 508, 538, 1798, and 1843. And the book that I mentioned has strong documentation to, to that effect. 
And um, there's also another book that was published by the Michigan Conference that has a couple of chapters. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. Um, it was edited by Ron Dupre, but uh, I don't remember the name of the book right now. But it has two chapters on that particular point. Yes? Are you talking now about? There's one statement. Could you kind of restate the question? Okay. Um, I hope I understood the question. <laughs> uh, the question has to do with um, a statement that Ellen White made where she seems to imply that the 1,335 days are still in the future. Am I reflecting what you said correctly? Uh, there's one statement of Ellen White which could be understood in that way. However, when you carefully read the syntax of what Ellen White is saying, she's not saying that at all. Uh, in fact, in this book that was published by the Michigan Conference, and I wish I could remember the name of it, um, in, that one, in, in one of those two chapters, it deals with the syntax of that statement from Ellen White. And it shows very clearly that she was not predicting that that was going to take place in the future, uh, as many people have assumed, by misreading the syntax of that statement by Ellen White. Um, just to illustrate, let me give you an example of how people misread uh, syntax and therefore they make future what is past. Uh, go with me to Revelation 11. How much time do we have yet? Ten minutes? Uh, that includes the question and answer? Okay. In ten minutes. Okay. In ten minutes, it is finished. Revelation 11. Do you know many people are saying that the 42 months are future? Do you know why they're saying that? Because, because they don't read the tenses of the verbs as they appear in the original. Verse 2. Well, let's, let's read verse 1 and then we'll go on to verse 2. 11. Revelation 11. See, we need to get, we can't just read translations as they appear. Get yourself a Greek interlinear. You know, an interlinear, you don't have to know Greek. An interlinear has the Greek on top and the English on the bottom or vice versa. And so it literally translates word for word. So you can know what tense the verbs are in and so on. It says, then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So after the disappointment, he's told to prophesy again, and then he's told to do what? 
to measure the temple and the worshipers therein. Then notice verse 2. But leave out the court which is outside the temple. In other words, measure. By the way, when Revelation speaks of the temple, it's the Greek word naos, which means the most holy place. Okay? In the book of Revelation, the word temple is most holy place. There are two words in Greek for temple. One is hieron, which refers to the total temple complex. That one's never used in Revelation. And then there's the word naos, which is used 15 times in Revelation, and invariably it refers to the most holy place. So when he's told to measure the temple and those who worship therein, it's talking about measuring the most holy place of the sanctuary. And then it says, but leave out the court which is outside the temple. In other words, don't measure the court. And do not measure it. Now notice this. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Are you catching the problem here? It's giving the impression that he's told to measure the temple, and then from that point on, the court is given to the Gentiles to trample for 42 months. Right? I don't know if that's the impression you get, but from the translation, he's told to measure the temple, but don't, don't measure the court, because the court has been given to the Gentiles, and then the Gentiles are going to trample According to this, the Holy City underfoot for 42 months. But really, if you look at the tenses of the verbs, what it literally says is, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do measure it, and do not measure it. For it was given to the Gentiles. That's a critically important verse or tense of the verb. Well, let me, let me put it here on the board so that you can see what I'm talking about. He's told, he's told in 1844 to measure the temple, right? But he's told, don't, don't measure the court. Because the court, what? Was given to the Gentiles. The question is, when was the court, the temp, the court given to the Gentiles? It was given to the Gentiles in the year 538. Right? And then it says, it was given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city 42 months. So when does the treading begin? In 538. In other words, it's not saying, measure the temple... And at the time, in 1844, the court of the temple is given to the Gentiles, and from this point on, they're going to trample the holy city 42 months. The tense of the verb makes it very clear that in 1844, he's told to measure the temple, measure the most holy place, those who worship therein, but don't measure the wicked. Don't measure the Gentiles. Those are those that don't belong to God's people. Because the court was given to them, in the year 538, and from that point on, they will trample the city for 42 months. So in other words, the will tread begins in 538. It doesn't begin in 1844. Are you with me? So in other words, we have to look at the tenses of the verbs too, or else we're going to get all messed up, and the same is true with Ellen White. We have to look at the syntax that she uses, and uh, because 
you know, let's face it, um, the, the prophets were human beings that were transmitting uh, the message of God, but they were doing it in human language. And all White says that human language is imperfect. I mean, I wish I could say that, that human language is perfect. It's not perfect. Human language is imperfect. So, you, so God has to transmit a perfect message in imperfect human language. So we need to study that language to determine what God intended to say through the writer of that book or the writer of that passage of scripture. Uh, was this clear to you? Okay, and uh, I have this in my material on the trumpets. I do a very detailed study of, of the chronological sequence. I, I, am com I, have, I have come to the conclusion that the most important thing that we can do as Adventists, besides praying, because we need to pray for God's wisdom, but in terms of, of technical study, I believe that the key to understanding Revelation is to understand its literary structure, how it was organized. More and more and more, I'm concluding that unless we know how the book of Revelation was organized through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, we're not going to understand where to place the events in the book. Because Revelation is not written in chronological order. It, it functions on the basis of climax, anticlimax, climax, anticlimax, climax, anticlimax. In other words, it goes back and over the same ground, then back and over the same ground, then back and over the same ground. And, and unless you know when it goes back, you're not going to be able to interpret the book of Revelation correctly. I'll give you one final example. Revelation has introductory scenes. And those introductory scenes contain two points of time. They contain the point of time when that vision begins, and it also gives you the event that ends that vision. For example, in Revelation 3.21 it says, He who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. Two points of time. When Jesus sat on the throne after he overcame, and whoever overcomes will sit with him on his throne. And the seals are the events in between those two points of time. In other words, in that one verse you have when the seals begin and when the seals end. The same is true with the trumpets. In the trumpets you have a scene where, where there's an angel who is Jesus. He's interceding with a censer. In other words, he, the prayers of the saints are going to him and he's interceding. And then suddenly the censer is thrown to the ground. Which means that intercession has what? Has ceased. The trumpets are actually depicting the time from when Jesus began to intercede and receive the prayers of his saints till the time when probation closes and the censer is thrown to the ground. And unless you realize that the introductory scene has both points of time, then you're going to say that the trumpets come after the censer is thrown down. That the trumpets come after the close of probation because immediately afterwards you have the trumpets. Are you with me? And so unless you understand the literary structure, you're going to misplace the events of Scripture. Well, uh, I hope that all this wasn't too confusing to you. I hope it was relatively clear. And uh, thanks for being here and for paying attention. And let's pray that the Lord will continue to guide us in our study together.